Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 73rd episode of the Truth Island podcast. Imagine you are on a first date. You get there several minutes early and map out the perfect table. You know the food and service are time-tested and will surely not disappoint. Your date arrives and she seems friendly enough. You exchange a few pleasantries, order something to eat, and then start getting to know one another. However, something isn't quite right. You notice that your date can't hold down a topic for more than a hot second. The conversation jumps around from topic to topic, like a kangaroo jumping around a savanna. Your date is constantly asking you random questions, noticing everything in the restaurant. No matter how much you try, nothing really seems to stick. You part ways and decide to go over to your friend's house, hoping for more substantive conversation. And yet, you find yourself in the same exact predicament. People are somehow talking about stuff without actually talking about anything at all. Sure, mouths are open and words are coming out, but ideas and thoughts are clearly not being exchanged as the rapidity of topics doesn't seem to amount to all that much. What's worse is that people are now whipping out their phones and are flashing photos and videos at one another with no real purpose or direction as to what they're doing. My God, you say to yourself, I don't think these people could pay attention if their life depended on it. The next day you go home and decide to take the day off to do some quiet reading. Only you now find that you yourself can't stop checking your phone. Oh no, I've become one of them, you lament to yourself. I've lost my attention span. To help us pay attention again, I am once again joined by Kenny. Kenny, we might need to make this conversation quick. I, I can already feel myself. My, my attention pan is, is starting to diminish, man. You, you got to help me out here. Well, I can... I, I can say this then. All right, we could, let's just uh, pack it up. <laughs> no, no. Um... <laughs> Here, here's a cute video on with my phone. Let me show that to you. That's. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're right. I mean, for the most part, I mean, you, you hear it all the time, especially amongst people in education, talking about how students often don't, can't seem to focus, can't seem to sit down and. Um, and give something their full attention. And for, for a long, I'm, I'm talking about even like 20, 30 minutes. Now this is almost an impossible task now. Now there's, you know, usually um, when, when, when you meet a kid like that, parents says, oh no, it's ADHD. Like, okay, but are you sure? Is, are you been, has it been diagnosed? Like, no, 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 I just kind of realized this, those are the symptoms. So, you know, <laughs> definitely just ADHD. Like, uh, and I'm, it, you, you've got to be sure first, because at the end of the day, if that's the case, then everybody's got this ADHD thing going on. Nobody's sitting down. Nobody's focusing. Now, I, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm going to get a lot of backlash from what I'm about to say, but I think that we're becoming a culture of what I like to call false crutches. False, false not real crutches, <laughs> but, but false crutches, where we... We, we realize that people are becoming softer, right? And instead of just having more rigor and having more discipline and being like, oh my, my son has no more attention span. You know, he's, he's on his phone, he's on the video games. 
maybe a hundred years ago, the answer was like, well, let's go into that room and take all that distracting nonsense out of that room so that the kid is kind of left with not much else but to pick up a book or to, to do something that, that requires a, a bit more effort. But now, instead of like disciplining somebody to do something that requires uh, an elongated attention span, our answer is to kind of give them a crutch and be like, oh no, it's not you, it's your condition. And there, there, you no, 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 it's okay. I'm just boring. I'm just a boring dad. Here you go. It's okay if you look at your phone disrespectfully while I'm talking to you and trying to share like a, a story. Yeah, I, my, my good man, I think that this is one of those things that, so before we talk about the attention span, especially when it comes to children, then we have to talk about the role of parents when how to interact with their children because this is important focus is not something that a child is naturally born with unless of course they're gifted children that's what makes gifted children so special is that they focus it's an incredible amount of focus but often parents don't step in into that powerful and i mean parents do have to be powerful they have to be but often, you know, when you, when you think of powerful, you know, that's, you know, I can't be powerful with my kids. That's, that's what supervillains do. It's like, no, that's what parents do. <laughs> a supervillain parent. <laughs> yeah, your you dad has to be like Lex Luthor for you to actually pay attention and do well in math class, right? <laughs> Done. I've noticed your grades have been down. <laughs> you know, so, um, <laughs> now I'm pointing this let me let me let me get the justice of evil on you to, to study. Yeah, you know, parents aren't, they're not, cracking down on uh, it's hard because you know parenting is one of those things that's incredibly difficult to talk about because everybody's an expert and everybody and there's this nobody personally i i don't think it's an easy thing to i don't think it's a it's a it's a proper thing to go around telling other people how to you know raise their kids but we're not telling i'm not talking about raising kids i'm talking about just the idea of parenting and that there's a there's a way that a parent does influence the attention span whether by introducing discipline focus and you know attention to detail when dealing with children and so forth absolutely you know and I, I like talking with you because you actually are a parent, you know, and that, that actually me, I'm a, you know, I was a teacher for 10 years, but it's actually nice um, because a lot of parents will throw uh, rocks at me and be like, you're not a parent. How, how, how dare you, you know, oh, but, yeah. but, but I think, I think that if anyone has a little authority on this, it's you because, you know, you're actually a parent. And what I've noticed, Kenny, I like that you use the word gifted child. I actually, I really love that you use that word because what I've actually noticed is a lot of these quote unquote gifted children have really rigid and stern parents. I, and I've yeah. noticed this and I'm like, well, well, geez, wait a minute. Is, is the kid biologically a genius or is the parent really strict? I'll give you a perfect example of this. In my elementary school, we had something called talented and gifted. And this was, you know, again, the, the G word gifted was there, right? Yeah. What I noticed is that those kids that were in talented gifted had 
parents that typically uh, migrated from foreign countries, you know, uh, definitely parents that came from like East Asian cultures and so forth, where yeah. there was rock solid discipline. And they would say, there's, <laughs> there's that, like this one girl I met was like, there's no television in my house. Like my mom doesn't believe in TV. We don't have TV or we have family reading time or, you know, I would be taught, I was a knuckle, you know, I always tell people when I was a kid, I was a knucklehead back then and played way too much video games. But these other kids, they didn't even have the option to get distracted with video games because Kenny, if I'm not mistaken, you know, you have to be like, 17 or 18 to open up a credit card right like you can't you can't just buy like if you're six years old you can't just buy video games and and we make it seem as if like well oh my kid plays too many computer games i'm like well wait hold hold the phone here how did your seven-year-old get a hold of that computer game to begin with and that's kind of where i think parents are dropping the ball in in a really substantial way they're they're blaming these mediums, like they're blaming computer games and video games. I'm like, well, where exactly did these kids get these things in the first place? My good man, it's, 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 I'm about to say something that may also get some pushback, but I have a, I have a suspicion. Don't worry. uh, Whoever wants to push back, their attention span hasn't lasted this long. You know, we're we're already at the five minute marker. So don't worry. They're already gone. So I'm safe. I'm safe. (laughs) If you want to say something dangerous, just wait five minutes or they'll just like trail off at that point. Well, this is going to be pretty dangerous. Let's see. I think that parents are afraid of their children. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. I think that many parents are incredibly afraid of their children. Now, they will never articulate it to themselves like that. Hello, my name is Bob, and I'm afraid of my son, (laughs) (laughs) No, But it's this unspoken, unaddressed, you know, unanalyzed fear of your child. Mm. And because because they feel those things and don't really know what to call it, they end up mistaking it for some sort of endearments or love. But it's really not. It's terror. Because, you know, if I, if, they, if I don't give this kid this thing, he or she is going to scream. They're going to make my life or my world for the next five to 10, maybe 15 minutes, an incredible amount of hell. And I don't want to go through that. So, <laughs> so the kid ends up calling the shots on so many levels, you know. And when, when a kid does that, no kid is going to say to themselves, well, it's, I know that I've I've looked upon my kingdom and I see that all that's all the only thing lacking is self-control. Now I shall sit down and teach myself self-control. No, that's not going to happen. They're going to just get more candy, more games, more, you know, um, more YouTube, more Twitter, whatever it is they uh, they, they want to um, engage with. Absolutely. And there's so many, you know, one thing I'll give a lot of credit here to uh, to my grandmother and my mother they they definitely were not afraid of me especially especially like when they were a head or so taller than me they 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 were not scared and i believe me kenny i used to nag i used to whine i used to be i i want to go to toys r us now you know you know and boom like done like like like, don't, like i'm not scared of you like you're yeah. you're a foot taller you're a foot shorter than i am <laughs> like <laughs> you have no credit card you have no livelihood if i just got in my car right now and drove away and left you in the shopping mall you'd be pissing <laughs> in your pants and and like that's you know like you know again like that wasn't the best feeling in the world when i was a kid 
but now I can kind of look back and say, thank God they were that way. You know, thank yeah. God that they they stood up to me and put me in my place and made me, you know, wait for my birth. Like if I ever wanted to expect anything good to come my way, it, it had to be like my birthday or Hanukkah or one of these like really important holidays for me to get any kind of present or a gift. Like yeah. we weren't just shelling out money will nilly for nonsense, like, you know, because it, because it was a, a special Tuesday or something, you know, like, yeah. like we, we, we had to earn this and we had to work for it. And I want to go back to why it is, and this is what we really need to focus on is why it is that parents are afraid of their children. Like what the hell has changed in our culture? Because I'll tell you what, the World War II parents, they were not afraid of their kids, not even not even slightly. They, they would like just, um, you know, maybe they went too far. Maybe they beat their kids with a cold slap in the face or with a belt or something. And maybe that's like the, the other extreme yeah. end of parenting, but they certainly weren't afraid of their kids. What do you think has changed? Why do you think parents are now in the submissive role and they're afraid? Well, my good man, if you look at a lot of, you know, popular media or popular, you know, psychology today, it has a lot, a lot of it is child oriented and that the child is the center and the focus. And so it's no longer about children obey your parents. No, it's parents creating environments where your child may desire to obey you if he or she chooses to do so mm-hmm. maybe it's like holy moly that that you, you you've changed you've changed the battlefield you've changed you've changed the foundation and you know kids have in, an incredible amount of power in their in, in in the homes of their parents and so what happens is there's everybody's so afraid so america has this very artificial and I use the word artificial because I think it is, in fact, artificial, artificial sense of familiness and love. Now, it's it's I mean, it's it's wonderful that people come together for Thanksgiving. It's wonderful that people come together for Christmas. Many of those times when people come together, they don't really like each other. Sure. They what happens is they didn't really want to see each other all throughout the year. So they feel, you know, moms ends up making you feel bad and you, you know, drag your sorry ass down to the you know down to the airports and you they fly you back home and you say I love I love everyone just I love my family (laughs) throwing that out there man (laughs) you you eat turkey and you're like oh my goodness yeah and then we you know then mom tries to create picturesque moments she makes sure that the turkey is fine it makes sure everybody having a good time and so forth and it's all smiles and giggles and all that but it's a very artificial often not all the time because of course these are exceptions but the the general the general the general mode of american family interactions is trying to get those key moments trying to get those good times oh boy don't you see us having fun here at disneyland all of us together again we're once again a family but it's not real yep so and gets uploaded to facebook immediately as as as, as as if it's like real as real as the air that we breathe right i'm telling you and people and and the people eat it up and this is what this is what the movies do repeatedly. And so what happens is that, you know, the kids, there's, a, there's this artificial, artificial emotion, emotive, or should I say this artificial emotion that parents often feel for their kids that isn't actually real, but they want it to be real. So, and it kind of goes something like this. I have a son now. I could just cry because I have a son now. It's like, dude. What are you talking about? 
Is you are you crying because you have you your son was birthed to you, or are you crying because you feel this is the need, mm. or should I say you feel that this is the right response? This is this ought to be your response at the birthing of your child. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like society wants you, like society basically tells us how to feel. feel. Yeah, like society has yes. a prescription for emotions. Like this is the societal, and if you don't cry at the right moment you're actually considered to be a sociopath or there's something yes. ter- terribly uh, wrong wrong with you. I'll give you a perfect example. When my own grandmother died, I actually didn't cry, but I loved my grandma more than like, like almost anyone, you know, like I yeah. loved her to death, but for whatever reason, crying was just something that I just wasn't feeling at that moment. I can't really explain why that was exactly Kenny, but I'm yeah. like, according to society, I'm a sociopath because I didn't cry like a trained seal at the right moment. And if anything, I think crying like, <laughs> a, like a trained seal. <laughs> yeah, like, like I know, I, I think that if anything, it's actually the trained seal that's a sociopath because the trained seal just cries when society snaps its fingers. The true, <laughs> yeah. the true person that's in tune with their feelings cries when they feel that it's right for them, not not when society prescribes that it's right for them. Yeah. And it's my, my good man, this happens often. So what happens is that kids, there's this place in, in, in the American ethos or the American psyche where kids have this weird artificial place and it's growing. And what's happening is that parents are losing control of their kids. Kids are doing whatever the hell they want to do and nothing's getting done. And often parents end up resent. Jordan Peterson talks about this. He said, don't let your kids do things that make you hate them. Yes, yes, Why yes. Why would he did. say that unless parents actually do let their kids do things that, that make them hate them? A lot of parents feel resentments towards their children. Mm, yeah, they do. But they can't, they feel, so, and, they, and they feel so ashamed of that, that they end up masquerading it as some weird, they end up lying to themselves that it's actually love or endearments or, you know? And it's like, you can call me for anything. You're like, mom, I need money. Get the hell out of my face, you little shit. You're like, oh, <laughs> where did that come from? <laughs> or no, you can call me for anything except for that. Go now, on. now, and now, this is where it gets even more sinister and it gets even worse, right? Because people might be like, well, what's the big deal? I want fake Cody, you know, Kodiak moments or whatever, right? We, I want yeah. this fake, fake, fakeness in my life. Fair enough. Well, that fakeness is going to actually come at a price because I think what goes on going back to this idea of of attention span and so forth is that what ends up happening is for, for that, what we call fake happiness, the child is basically indulged with whatever the child wants. Right. And if the child is throwing a tantrum and being disruptive and, and, and doing that, well, that's, that's ruining and damaging the fantasy. Whereas, okay, if I just spend 35 bucks and get them the video game that they want, if I just give them unlimited iPad access, right? Now I get to restore my Kodiak moments. I get to restore my Disney World kind of vision of how this house should look like. But every time you do that, you're killing your child's potential. You're killing your child's attention span. You're killing their ability to develop the skill of delayed gratification, right? Like we, we also... 
I think attention span also has to deal with this idea of delayed gratification because we want it and we want it now. We want that access now. We want the movie we want now. Everything is quicker. Everything is faster. You know, back when I was a kid, if I wanted to watch a movie, well, I would have to conjure up $3.25 doing chores so or, or, or doing something, you know, some something. I had to perform some service to get $3.25, leave my house, put on my shoes, go all the way down to the video store and get that video. So like there was work and there was delayed gratification built into these systems. And that kind of increased my attention span and it increased um, my work ethic and my motivation to do things. But because everything now is so instant and just instantly delivered, people aren't really appreciating what they're getting and they're kind of taking everything. Even if you're watching a great Scorsese movie, you're kind of taking it for granted because it kind of just came too easily. It just landed way too easily in your lap. You just turned on Netflix and boom, there it was. You didn't actually have to do anything to earn $3.25 to rent that video from the video store. Yeah. I mean, I think what you just said makes an incredible amount of sense, especially that last part, that last bit about you didn't have to do anything and came too easily. Yes. One of the things I've learned about this life is that if you ask no questions, you will get no answers. Sure. And it's important that you ask those questions. It's important that you ask those questions and you seek out the answers. Now, if you ask a question and you get an answer free of charge without searching, you, you will despise the answer because it's not how you say, it's not your, it's not your, um, it's not your sweat and your blood. You have no idea what the other person went through to get that answer. That's why they say that people say, well, the wise, a wise man listens to advice. That's true, but many of us aren't wise. So we often have to go through the rigmarole of getting those answers by ourselves. So kids today often have a lot of questions. They still do. Kids are always going to have questions. But the problem is the answers are so ready for them. It's so ready for them. Um, Google. No, you, you don't need a dictionary anymore. There was a time when you could go to the dictionary looking for one word and learn, and learn five words because you, you saw not only the one you were looking for, but you saw everything else in adjacent to it. Yes, yes, you know? yes. But now all you got to do is type in that single word and you have that definition for that single word. And because it was that simple, there was no, there's no, I mean, there's really no reason to remember it because if you forget it, which you will, Mm-hmm. Google is right there again. You know? Yes. And you know what? I actually, I love that you brought up the dictionary because I think the dictionary is the ultimate learning device and the ultimate way to accrue knowledge. And I'll tell you why. I remember when I was a kid, I had this very big, colorful, scholastic um, dictionary. I had colorful yeah. pictures and that was awesome. Using that thing was, was really joyful because it was actually when you're, you know, you might think that we're looking up a word in a dictionary is fairly easy, and it is for an adult, but for a kid, it's not so easy because then you go yeah. S, oh, what's the next letter? M, oh, and then N, and then you're like S U S U. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. So then sometimes 
it, the word I was looking for was not in the, 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 the big scholastic dictionary. I actually had to get an adult size dictionary and that was even more difficult. But when I found that word, I was like, Eureka, I found it. I found this word. And then, and then yes. like, I was excited and I, I, I was like, I earned, I earned, I actually earned this word. And all of that procedure taught me discipline. It taught me to value knowledge. It taught me to work hard to learn something. Like all of that was embedded by using the dictionary. So I love the example that you're using right now, just yes. instantly Googling. And you know what? When you instantly Google something, you'll probably instantly forget it as well. That's Absolutely. why, because people, you know, all of these um, like scientists and stuff have been debating like, well, geez, we have more information at our disposal than ever before. Why are people so dumb? And I'm like, well, it's because they're not actually earning that knowledge. They're not actually putting in the work. You know, I, I've talked to people who got their their you know their master's degrees or wrote their dissertations back in the 70s. And back in the 70s, when you wanted to learn something, you had to go to a library and you had to ask a librarian and you had to get like a big book. And guess what? You would have to comb through that book and read a bunch of stuff that wasn't really applicable to what it is that you were researching. But you kind of learned a lot of incidental things along the way, right? Like reading stuff, reading stuff that wasn't uh, uh, pertaining to your research area. You still learned all this, like all this other stuff on the side which was making you more knowledgeable and more well-rounded on the whole. And then you sat next to a typewriter and actually just typed it up. Here, we're looking things up. Oh, great, great. I just type it into the paper, copy, paste or whatever. And now, and then we just forget about it. And so we're not actually appreciating. We're not categorizing. We're not, we're not really um, cataloging knowledge. We're just, we're kind of renting. We're renting the knowledge and then we're putting it back on the shelf. Whereas when you actually had to put work into the knowledge, it actually stayed in your internal catalog for a longer period of time absolutely absolutely and and that that is one of the reasons why it's important for and it comes back i believe that it comes back to parents attention spans come back to parents it's important for parents to have to allow their kids to search things out and often and it's not searching things out in the sense of Oh, I want him to find himself. Sure, it's not that's that's not what I mean. I mean, actually, hey, mom, I, what does what does this mean? Well, here's a dictionary, or here's an encyclopedia. Look for it, and t- and you come back and tell me. Another thing is, you know, interest. Parents often think that by by being strict or disciplined, or you know, how you say, holding their children on a short leash that they're stifling their creativity or they're stifling their um their wandering spirits quote unquote right mm-hmm. it's like no not really because kids are all over the map the kids don't know what they want it's like i this comedian tells a joke he said he asked his son what do you want to be he says i want to be a doctor when he says what do you want to be when you grow up he says i want to be a doctor when i grow up he was so happy then his son looks at him and says or a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, that's, that's that's kids, you know. They don't they they're all over the map. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, and like modern day parenting would teach you to be like, yeah, explore your inner dinosaur. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, no, right. no, you're you're not like a good parent would just have like a thousand follow up questions and be like, you know, I like this idea of being a doctor, but dinosaur. 
you know, hey, Billy, are there any more dinosaurs left? No, there, there's no dinosaurs. They're in the museum. And then all of those follow-up questions and actually getting the kid to think it through actually makes them more logical and makes them a lot more intelligent. When you entertain their stupid fantasies about being a dinosaur, you're not teaching them to be more creative. You're actually allowing them to indulge in, in, in real nonsense. And you're allowing them to indulge in fantasy, in, in like not constructive fa fantasy. You're allowing them yeah. to kind of indulge in delusion. And you're sort of, you're not teaching them how to think is basically what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a big difference with a kid. See, creativity, creativity and insanity are not the same thing. Yes. An insane man will say a bunch of random things. And you, you, you and, and if he was dressed up as an artist, <laughs> the public might say, wow, he's so deep. You know, <laughs> I'm telling you, in our world today, it's very strange. I know. But sanity, it takes it takes an incredibly sane mind to be really creative. Yes. It's it's it's, you know, the difference between a kid saying I've in my in my in my head I've created a world called Averia and is such a princess or such a prince and such a creature and whatever it's like yeah and you know he's telling the story of what he's made in his mind he knows that this is make believe but he takes it seriously mm -hmm. in in to its own credits but the insane child says I am the prince of Avaria, or I am this thing, and believes it. Yes, yes. And it's like, oh no, no. They're like, and it's, and it's like, okay, no, no. But that's just him expressing. Listen, man, I, I don't care. That is not that. It may end up being okay, but that is not how you how you say. That's not how you foster creativity, because at the end of the day, the kid. What happens is the kid ends up becoming this person who consciously or unconsciously doesn't want to or just can't tell the difference between what the real world actually works like and what their inner fantasies are you know what i mean and i think it's important to just remind our listeners that you are speaking as an artist and as a parent so you yourself are an incredibly artistic and creative person and even you as the artist is like no 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 to be a true artist is not to indulge delusions and to in, in day oh, no. like like it's it's oh, no. not it's not to do that at all and it's like if your kid has a fantasy you'd be like hey you know what that would actually make for a great novel or, Hey, that would make for a great short story or, Hey, why don't you draw me a picture of a varia or something? That's okay. Because now you're not affirming the child's delusion, but instead you're taking the delusion and giving them a proper channel uh, to express their fantasy appropriately, because it's totally cool to talk about fantasy worlds yes. um, in the realm of fiction or in the realm of, of drawing a painting and so forth. And that's the kind of, distinction that parents aren't making they're like if i dare say that avaria does not exist i am a tyrant i am uh, i am forever it's 1984 i'm an oppressor of this child's mind exactly. and i'm like no no you're not stifling it you're just giving them a channel to express their creativity yeah, and, and and it's very helpful because i mean if if we were you know and people say okay you know it's the difference between the kid who um, so there are two kids that that get bullied okay 
there are two kids that get bullied. The first kid is the kid who is imaginative, who is actually creative and often very much smarter than the other children. And because they're jealous and because they don't understand him, they bully him. There's another kid who is on the other category, very creative, but almost insane. <laughs> believes he is Spider-Man. Literally believes he's Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. He gets bullied. You know what I mean? I used to hang out with a kid that thought he was literally a vampire. I kind of played along with him, but I, I at least I, I'll give myself credit. Like I secretly knew in the back, yeah, you, you know, like I'm not. <laughs> You're not a vampire. Like I, I was in third grade, I was like, I'm not a vampire, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I don't think that's. Um, I think it's far. I think it's. I, I'm. I'm far more sympathetic to the kid who is sane, who is how you say, well who understands the difference between his reality and the actual world because I, I don't think it i don't think it destroys the i don't think it destroys the hearts or the the imaginative drive or juice of that child i think it actually um because he knows it's fiction and because he knows it's totally within his own power to create that it actually forces him or encourages him to do do so more often and um more freely Yes. I want to turn direction. I want to turn sales here on the, the conversation a little bit. And this was something that I, I brought up with uh, in, in another podcast with my friend Daniel. And I'm noticing that really, really, really powerful parents, like really affluent parents, tend to be raising their kids radically different than children that, that, um, like, that, basically different than how the rest of us are told to raise their kids. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. I've read this in several articles. I've read this in several news stories. It's kind of faded away right now. But I was reading stories that like all of these tech giants, right, from Silicon Valley, your Mark Zuckerberg, your Bill Gates, all of them send their kids to schools where smartphones are not allowed and where chalkboards are used. And they're not allowed to have laptops or Kindles. They, they have to actually read the books um, in their paperback form. And they, they kind of encourage that behavior to continue in the household. So I, I, what I'm noticing here, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory, but I'm, what I'm noticing is that the people who are actually making these attention grabbing devices are actually raising their kids in the complete opposite fashion they're actually sending their kids to schools where they have to learn like how you and i learned growing up with dictionaries and books and the old-fashioned way and they're encouraging their kids to study really tough subjects like calculus and whatnot that require a lot of focus and a lot of um attention span but us middle class and lower class families are being told no 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 teach your kid using this app right like we were there's all like there's this whole industry of educational technology that keeps releasing new apps and and having the kids like push the app or whatever whereas all of these very wealthy parents are sending their kids to schools that just teach the kid in the old-fashioned way and i'm yes. like what the heck is going on here my friend my good man i think that so if this is in fact the case, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Because nobody knows how powerful, nobody knows how powerful and how powerfully addictive Facebook is, like the people who designed it. I think that the average, the average human being, or should I say the average middle-class citizen is too busy with making the money, trying to make a living and so forth to actually sit down and consider these things. 
There are some who do, but many don't. There's a school here actually in Moscow, Idaho called Logas. Logas, yeah, some Logas something. I think it's just Logas. And it's built, I believe, on those specific principles. You read the classics. The pedagogy is very different from the um, the public school. The run-of-the-mill public school, yeah. Yes. There's um, very tough teachers, very, very tough, I you say, very, very tough program. And they actually kick students out who can't keep up, you know? So I think that it's very helpful for if for parents, my friend used to, he has the saying, he said, listen, give your children the best education you can afford. If all you can afford is public school, do it. That is all you can afford. That's the best you can do, then do it. Many kids have gone through the public school system and turned out incredibly fine. If you can do better, if you can put your school, your kids in those schools that's encouraged them to read the classics, that encourage them to, how you say, to focus on, you know, on very difficult subjects and topics and challenge your kids in such, you know, avant-garde ways, then please, by all means, do. And if, you know, homeschooling is all you've got, then it's all you've got. Just give your kids the best education that you can, that you can afford, because it really does change the life of the child. Absolutely. First off, that school seems miraculous. I mean, as as someone who taught for 10 years, that seems like a place I would really want to work at. I mean, reading the classics, check mark, throwing out disruptive kids who are distracting the learning environment and not keeping up with everyone else, check mark. Like, like, those are beautiful things. Like, these, these are actually beautiful things. And I guarantee you, if you if you, in any of these schools, when you raise the bar extremely high, the kids actually meet it. Like we, we, we have this like false sense that, oh, if the bar is too high, we're going to have to leave behind 50%. I'm like, no, 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 no. You raise the bar extremely high. You'd be surprised how many of those kids actually jump over that bar. And then it's only maybe two or three kids that just, you know, you're like, Hey, this isn't really the learning environment for, for your son or daughter, you know, so forth. And it's like, it's it's amazing that the elites and the most powerful members of our society are actively, you know, writing, you know, they're, they're like all these psychology books are coming out, be soft to your kid, you know, be your kid's best friend, let them go on this app all day long, um, let the kid explore their inner dinosaur or whatever the hell. And then the elites raise their children in the opposite way. They said they probably would send their kid to a school like Logos where they are reading the classics and stupid behavior is not. And when you really think about it, it's like, well, to get into Harvard, to get into Yale, to get into these premier elite institutions, you really need a disciplined mind. You really need to be high. You need to be able to focus on math problems and really dense pieces of English text for sustained periods of time in order to really excel at our society. And I'm like, it's just, it's pure hypocrisy at this point, Kenny. It, it really is. And I, I think, I think we are unable to talk to each other because our attention spans are diminishing so much. Well, here's the thing. It's, it's not up to, it's not up to the elites to tell you how to raise your children. It's not up to the elites to tell you what schools to send your kids to. It's not up to the elites. And it, the very fact that we think that means that there's a, there's something incredibly wrong with us because it's up to you think for goodness sakes. I mean, sit down with a pen and paper and say, you know what? I want my kids to be brilliant. I want them to have a gentle heart. I want them to have a whatever it is, wise, understanding, powerful, strong, whatever. Figure out, okay, 
as a human being, how do I figure this out? How do I figure this out for myself? Because here's what I know about life. When I was born, as I grew up, my parents lied to me. My friends lied to me. I went to school, my teachers lied to me. Went to university, my college professors lied to me. I grew up, went to job, went, got a job. My employees and my fellow my my employer and my fellow employees lied to me. Human beings are liars. It's always been that way. Our politicians lie to us. It's nothing new. Our media lies to us. Nothing new. Our poetry often lies to us. Nothing new. Sometimes our literature lies to us. It's nothing new. When you put your faith, when you put your life and your children's life in the minds of others, in, in, the mind, in the hands of other people, and you expect not to be lied to, you're a fool. Man, I, I mean, that's, that's very, this is very, very, very deep, Kenny. And, and I, I, I want to unpack what you just said, because yeah. I, there is like, you know, there's a huge part of me that is in perfect agreement with you, perfect agreement with you. I absolutely, I absolutely see that. I'm wondering what it is that turns our fellow brethren into liars. And, and, and this is something that I'm, I, I've been struggling with, 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 with myself and maybe, and, and I, the only way I can really understand this is to look inward and say, well, Aaron, when have you been a liar? So I, I, yeah. I have to look inward at my, because of course I, I have lied, I, you know, I'm not perfect. And when I did lie, it's probably because I wanted to tell people what they wanted to hear. So yeah. I, I think what it is, is that when we have these politicians and we have these authors and writers and these hip, cool psychologists that are telling their parents, let your kids eat candy bars all day and go on iPads, it, it may not be evilness. It may not be like, like direct evilness. No. It, may not, it may not be a conspiracy. It might just be that like the cool psychologist wants to be a cool psychologist. They want to be yeah. liked. They want to be liked by parents. So the school psychologist gives in and says, yeah, it's okay. You're, you know, you're trying your best feed your kid candy bars and, and Mickey D's all the time, you know? So that psychologist wants to be liked. And in order that psychologist thinks that in order to be liked, they must lie. They must tell the parents what it is that they want to hear or what the easiest option is available. Yes. You know, I'll tell you a story about this one teacher I worked with, you know, um, God bless her. I have so much respect for her every year in September right? The, you know, the school yeah. year would start in September. She was the one, the one hard ass teacher, you know, even, even I was a softy compared to her. I had and, many of those. Yeah. She was the one hard ass teacher and all, everybody in, in September, she was the wicked witch of the land. Everyone hated her. The kids hated her. The principal hated her. The parents hated her. Everyone tried to get her and she just like a wall took all of it. But Kenny, when June rolled around, she was the most beloved teacher in the entire school because the kids actually trusted her because she spoke the truth at all times. And, and her yes. truth was often ugly and harsh and unrefined and, and just direct. But people were like, hey, I trust her because she speaks the truth. And what ended up happening is by the time June rolled, uh, rolled around, she was the most trusted and respected person in the building. And yeah. all the other teachers that were soft and lied to the kids and said, you're a special little something, 
those teachers completely lost all credibility. Their entire credibility was tossed out the window by the time like December came around because kids figured out these teachers are lying to me. They're a bunch of freaking liars. That one teacher who's being hard on me is actually speaking the truth. And it takes like a lot of stamina. It takes a lot of, you have to have a really high value, you know, you have to have high self-esteem of yourself in order to stand all of these attacks. And then what's crazy about it is that the summer would come and then September would roll around and the whole process would begin all over again. So not, she didn't just fight this battle once. She actually had to fight this exact battle every single year. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty much, uh, what's his name? Uh, you know the the guy with the rocks. I'm saying, (laughs) (laughs) you know, he's like, like she basically had to like, um, you know, Mm -hmm. shove that boulder up the up up the rock each and every time, and then and then have it uh, brought down. And that's what it takes. So I think I I think these. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh my god. So some (laughs) names, my friend. You know, and I, I I think that in order to be a truth teller, you have to have one. You have to be really sure of who you are. And two, you have to take a lot of blows and you have to take a lot of hits. Absolutely. I think you do. I mean, bruv, if you look at the people who tell us the truth the most in this world, we hate them. We hate them. A lot of the time, the youth love them. Young people love them a lot. But adults hate them because we feel incredibly threatened by truth. We have too much at stake. It's not just about telling people what they want to hear. I think that is a part of it too. But it's also the, you know, the fear that you might lose your job, you might lose your standing in politics, lose your standing amongst your friends. It might you might get up, you know, might lose your funding. You might lose your a lot of it is money. Yeah. You, know? you might lose lose that grants that you've been writing that you've been waiting for. Well, you, you say the wrong thing and it's 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 gone. And so what what do you do? You say the right thing so that it stays. Yes, yeah. that you know what it's so funny, man. Because you know, I, I, you know, I, I started off this conversation offline with you, kind of uh, bitching and complaining, like, oh, people, you know, don't have the attention span to listen to the podcast and so forth. Mm-hmm. And what I'm noticing is that podcasts that do very well have a lot of comedians, a lot of jokes. Most of the conversations are very uh, like light on the touch, light on the ear, a lot of laughter, but there's a lot of phoniness and there's a lot of fakeness in these podcasts. And I'm starting to realize that when you dare speak the truth, like when, when you dare speak the truth, we might write it off as, oh, well, these people have limited attention spans or Instagram or whatever is taking their attention. But I'm like, I like what you said that it's actually the adults of our society that come to hate you because you're you're dare you're upsetting the the status quo and and like I said for the limited people that are listening right now I think this is one of the most dangerous podcasts in America because we're we're very calm we're very rational but we talk about issues in a very long and sustained manner if you listen to uh, if you listen to other podcasts they flip conversations every five minutes they're like oh yeah let's talk about this check out my new watch and it's just right and it's really light on the touch it's very it's a soft touch but this podcast actually has the potential to be dangerous because we actually stay on track for a really long time and we dig in deep. Like we're not digging a thousand holes. We're digging one really, really, really incredibly deep hole. 
Yes, sir. Yeah, I think it's it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. It's, truth is something, one of those things that when you find it, it's important to hold on to it. Yes. Um, I do believe that we're living in a world filled with li- not filled with lies and a sense of lies are flying around. I think we're living in a world with humans who have the capacity to lie and lie often. Yes. Um, and so the, the best thing that we can do is think for ourselves. It doesn't mean we'll get everything right, but it does mean that we're in good hands because if you can trust your, or if you can, if you have, if you, if you can't trust yourself, who can you trust? You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. So Kenny, let's just think here for a little bit on the practical side. So what, what, what is a man to do? And I'm really, I'm really struggling with this myself is that people have very limited attention spans and they have a very limited, especially they have a very limited attention span for the truth, right? Like that yeah. topic is very sensitive to them. So yeah. we have, we have a culture that prioritizes being distracted and it prioritizes avoidance of the truth. And do we, do you and I just die on some hilltop somewhere or, or <laughs> is there, is it like, is there, is there a way? Will there be cake? Yeah. Right. Like cake, cake mountain there. Right. And then and, and it's like, I, I'm wondering if, if there's some way that we can start microdosing the truth or, or, or micro packaging the truth. Okay. You got a, you got a, a short attention span, boom, a little, a little flash of truth. And, yeah. and then we, we withdraw it a little bit. Like I, I almost think like with anything in this world that may, maybe there needs to be a gradual integration process, right? Because a kid that's been eating candy and playing with the iPad all day, you can't just expect them to read Charles Dickens overnight. Right. And, and it's unfortunate that all of this um, neglect and all this abuse has already occurred, but I'm wondering how how can we reverse the process of this, or is it already too late? No, it's never too late. Okay, it's never too late. Thank goodness. I think <laughs> I think the the farther you go, it's going to be incredibly hard to get to the right path. But it's never impossible as long as you have life in you and you're not totally crippled by disease or something like that. You know. Mm. So I think that it's um, when it comes to let's say dosing out dishing out truth to the masses it's one of those things that i think you're right it has to be in small doses you have to get you have to gain get people's attention you know you say something here that someone a couple people reading like my goodness i have no idea what that means but it sounds true Mm, mm. tell me more you know what i mean so it's kind of like i think twitter twitter is the best place for this because twitter is all about speaking something usually nonsense but speaking something saying something very succinctly. So I think that's with, you know, when philosophers get a hold of Twitter, they, they, have, they have an avenue to do this, you know? Um, that's why if you, if you notice, I wrote me book in, in short sayings, short yes, words. Yes, yes, yes. I think that was a good move. I'm wondering, like, and I, I, I have mixed feelings about Twitter because on one hand, like, yes, like people have very short attention spans, but if everything just maintains at a short attention span, how do people grow from there? You see, this is my dilemma, Kenny, because it's like, if we keep meeting people at their level, right, which is Twitter. So let's just assume that everyone is at the baseline 
of Twitter, right? They cannot yeah. read more than a sentence. And I actually think that that is the truth right now. I think people yeah. cannot read more than one sentence. I think that's yeah. too much for them. How do we build stamina though? Because if, if we just continue to use Twitter forever and ever, we'll never get them to read a novel. We'll never get them to read a page. You know, we'll never, like we have to, we have to have a mechanism where here's Twitter, but here's the next layer. Here's the next step to rebuilding your attention span. Oh my goodness. No, no, I, I think, I think that it's possible, Aaron. I think that from Twitter, people can start reading novels. And here's why. Um, I think this is, when I, this is when I get into weird <laughs> metaphysics. But um, I think that human beings have a desire to know, to learn, to understand, to grow. I think that it's very natural to us. Unfortunately, it's become somewhat unnatural in that we suppress it or we misdirect it. So a person may know about every donut under the sun, but can tell you how to treat his wife or can tell you how to make friends, but he knows all the guitars ever made. Yeah. He, he's taking that desire to know and focused it on the things that are not as important as, hey, how do I survive this human experience? What am I doing here? Who am I? What the hell is my purpose here? Does purpose exist? What does it mean? So forth. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that Twitter, and I think that language, one of my favorite subjects is actually semiotics, meaning and it's meaning and words, words and their meaning, symbols and their meanings. And um, I think language carries meaning and human beings are beings of meaning we we literally know what things mean a word is when i say the word pie the average american knows pie what it means it comes at least two things come to mind other than the sequence of numbers or you know cherry pie apple pie the the, the dessert yeah <laughs> so i think the language has a way of carrying meaning from you to another person and you can meaning awakens meaning. There's, there are people who their, their lives change simply because they read the right words and it sparks something in them. We don't understand these things. Yes. But it's, 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 it's meaning calling on to meaning. It's, it's, it, we have a way of bringing each other to life. Mm. That's why I don't like meaningless words. When people talk frivolously, just smacking of the lips here and there and, they, and nothing is being said. It's almost repulsive because as agents of meaning, our actions should be meaningful. Our words should be meaningful, you know? So I think that meaning, I think that Twitter may begin it. It may begin, in tw it may begin with Twitter, but it may end with, um, with far more than that. I hope so. I, I, I think yeah. that's beautiful if it could begin with Twitter, Twitter and end in a book. I mean, I think that would be fantastic. Believe, yes. One, one thing, and I, I heard this actually on another podcast, though, is that like the goal of Twitter, right, is to keep you on Twitter, right? And like the, unfortunately, the people who operate these websites kind of operate out of an algorithm model. Yeah. So the idea is that like you read something on Twitter but then you read something else on Twitter and you never, you read a lot of little sayings, some of them really stupid, some of them really intelligent, but the goal is to just keep reading small little tidbits on Twitter and never leave Twitter. And I think that these guys need to kind of take a little bit of a loss here 
and built in more mechanisms where I can put a profound quote on Twitter and then allow the artists of that quote to have a link of like, read my full blog or read my full article or read my book over here. There needs to be more of that, that gateway built into these applications where, and like, again, is it going to hurt the bottom line of these companies if people are on Twitter and then they're clicking on a blog that is off the platform? Yeah, it's going to hurt their bottom line. There's, there's going to be less ad revenue. But I think that they they fundamentally owe it to us as a species because what they're doing to us is, des- is destroying us. They owe it to us to, to start discussing amongst themselves like, hey, it looks like the masses are really bleeding out there. Like our kids are good. They're going to the logo school and reading Charles Dickens, but the masses out there, they're dying off, 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 off of this. We owe it for, from, from a humanitarian standpoint, they owe it to us to kind of start fixing these things. But that's the thing is that they, they can't, they, as much as we like to believe that humanitarianism um, does all, exist, ultimately it doesn't. Because ultimately, it always comes down to the money. It always comes down to the money or sex, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's your, I've, I've used that quote in other episodes, by the way. I, I, I defer to you on that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Kennedy, sex. Okay, yeah, so, sex and uh, money. <laughs> um, so I think that it's very... It, it's It's... People don't care about people. I mean, and especially, let's just say Twitter. Let's just like let, let, let's say Twitter was a person. Okay. Yeah. Twitter doesn't give a damn about humanity. Twitter just wants to make money. Yes. That's all Twitter wants. Now, Twitter may put put out some ads that make Twitter look like, hey, Twitter really does care about you, and Twitter Twitter wants to have you over for dinner. <laughs> Twitter don't give a damn. Twitter just wants your money. So, it's not about the the, the problem is not about changing Twitter. Let Twitter stay the same. The problem is about changing humanity and changing humanity, the, the, the core of the core of what it means to be human, because human beings are generally domesticated. We're not supposed to be domesticated. The average human being sits down for at least maybe eight hours, could sit down on a Saturday, eight hours watching television. Complete opposite really of could. our biology right off the bat complete opposite of our biology you have legs for walking hands for move for, for moving things you know what i mean you have a brain for thinking but what you're doing is you're shutting these things off you're like a cow being bred <laughs> you're like <laughs> we are we are we, you know you're like you're like basically like livestock there and is and there, we... there used to be an expression like the, this person has a cow face meaning that there's no <laughs> there's no thoughts beyond the face like the beyond face is the there face. The face is there. It's a cow face. Yes. Yeah. So if you, here's the thing is that if human beings are sterile and we are domesticated when we're not supposed to be, and that's how, that's why Twitter works. Twitter is designed for domesticated cow people. That's <laughs> yes, why Facebook, is. Facebook is designed for domesticated cow people. But if you can change that, if, when, when, if you, I don't know if you ever met someone who says, yeah, I don't, I'm not on Facebook or I'm not on Twitter. I just, I, I used to I used to scratch my head at those people, but now I love them. I used I used to be like what what you have no you're you're all this you know this, like society had conditioned me into thinking that person was antisocial, but now I'm like no 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 God bless God bless the fact that you're out here, my friend, and thank you yeah thank you for using your flip phone you know like I yeah, just, this, <laughs> these 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 are people that have refused 
Yeah. And it's not working on them. It's not it's not working on them because they are waking up. They are standing up. They are moving their minds, their bodies. They are no longer cow people. They are living, breathing human beings, you know, who can choose to stay on Twitter or choose not to stay on Twitter. I think I, I, I think that that is actually the topic of our next podcast is like how how can we develop techniques into not becoming cow like people? I, I think I think because the fact that you and I exist right now and yeah. the fact that there's other people out there who don't have Facebook, who don't have Twitter, the fact that we exist and even though we're in a, a very small minority, the fact our very existence proves that it is possible so i yeah. think that is absolutely the next um episode we must do kenny sounds great thank you so much for being on the show today Aaron. thank you so much for having me anytime this concludes the 73rd episode of the truth island podcast i'm aaron azrod